This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Gadigal Land on the Eurorian Nation. And I'm Frank Kelly, also on Gadigal Land today, and it's great to have you here in the Sydney studio, PK. We're in the studio together. This almost never happens. Big moment for Anthony Albanese coming up to get straight to it. This Sunday is the one-year anniversary of the Albanese Labor government. Yes, one year ago, he left his Marrickville home and drove to the Canterbury RSL to deliver his victory night speech to the party faithful and to the nation, a speech that included this pledge. During this campaign, I have put forward a positive, clear plan for a better future for our country. And I have shared the two principles that will drive a government that I lead. No one left behind because we should always look after the disadvantaged and the vulnerable. But also no one held back because we should always support aspiration and opportunity. That is what my government will do. Prime Minister-elect at that point, Anthony Albanese, on election night. So how did he go one year on? Has he lived up to that central pledge of no one left behind and no one held back? We're going to look at that and other promises. Uh, We're going to be joined a little later by Charles Croucher, the Chief Political Editor for Nine News. But PK, as the PM limbers up for this one-year anniversary in power, he's had a tough week, really, I think, if you compare it to most other weeks. This milestone comes off the back of the government's first major budget. They've had two. He's encountered a few roadblocks thrown up by the opposition leader, Peter Dutton. A more confident-sounding Peter Dutton, I think, finally this week than he has been all year. He's been criticising Labor for leaving behind the working poor, as he calls them. He's pointed to Labor's higher immigration targets in the budget, uh, and at the same time he says Labor's stripping money out of infrastructure funds. Whatever the cracks are in some of those arguments, it has forced the PM and his Treasurer to defend their budget offerings for Middle Australia and also their immigration plan, which actually was not that much different to the former government's immigration numbers. At the same time, the Reserve Bank of Australia is hinting at further rate rises, which is tough for any government. The Housing Future Fund, a core promise of Labor, looks completely stranded in the Senate. At the same time, housing is a hot-button issue right now. Support for the voice in Parliament appears to be slipping backwards, if the latest Resolve poll is correct. And to top it all off, PK, the US President Joe Biden pulled the rug from under the PM this week. His troubles at home with the debt ceiling forcing him to abandon next week's visit to Australia, to our Parliament and to the region. So that Quad Leaders meeting has now been downgraded to a leader's pull aside at the G7 in Japan, which is a blow to any Prime Minister looking forward to the reflected glory of such a high-level political show here on Australian soil. You could say reality bites, or you could say the honeymoon's over. You could say things are getting tougher, and it's a year in, so you'd expect that, I think, about now, especially after the second budget, really the first big budget, the other one was just about election promises. 
Just on the budget cell, I mean, these are really tough economic times. It's never an easy task to actually sell a budget unless you're just giving away freebies. And even then, uh, if you look at the history, budgets don't always, you know, have a big bounce, even when they're giving away free money, and this one can't. But when you drill down on the results, people think the government has done well despite the fact that they don't personally think that they're getting an advantage. And they're right to not think they're getting an advantage because the budget doesn't, you know, put money in their specific pockets. That's the thing. We got used to, you know, tax breaks on petrol, things like that, didn't we? We got used to some things and, and particularly during the pandemic, we, yeah, had to, I mean. we had to be boosted because really everything was put on pause. Like we literally put the economy on pause. So we expected that. I think like 31% of households think there is something in the in the budget for them. It is low, but that I think they grudgingly do accept that the government had to provide targeted support for the most vulnerable and it was so targeted, so targeted in fact that people on the progressive side don't think it's enough. That's mm. how targeted it was and, and how low-balled really it was when you look at the raise to the unemployment benefit. On some of the more fundamental issues that they had promised, the big one, wages, huge issue at the election. In fact, really, in my view, the overarching fundamental issue that the Prime Minister injected into the campaign. That I will boost wages, we will boost wages. Yeah, that, that they would not deliberately suppress wages, which they said was a design of the previous government. And wages had really struggled under the previous government. That's a fact if you just look at the data. This week, the wages data showed a 3.7% increase in wages. That's the highest lift since 2012. It is significant. But of course, back to the reality of where we're at, when there's inflation running at 7%, you know, that, that's eroded, right? What The real value of that increase doesn't give you the bounce that you'd normally expect. So there is still nerves around that. Peter Dutton has tried to exploit it. I do think he sounded a little like he's on better ground. We recorded this podcast last week before Peter Dutton's budget reply. In that budget reply, I think one clever thing he did do was really design a policy around keeping more of your income when you're on the unemployment benefit if you work extra hours. I think actually politically it was smart for him to have an alternative rather than just be, as the Prime Minister likes to say, he is the no-alition, just saying no to the $40 increase. So having something to actually say rather than just be the no guy probably put him on better footing, I think. But, I mean, on that idea, he, you know, that's still, I think, you know, he randomly kind of put out a figure. It was about, you know, $2.5 billion. Um, I think it was... The, the shadow treasurer, Angus Taylor, couldn't quite quantify it or wouldn't at the press club, so they're a bit confused on that. But here is Peter Dutton talking about his idea. Our proposal to the government is that somebody in that scenario where they work 10 hours a fortnight, it means that they could be roughly about $350 better off uh, over the course of that fortnight. That's Peter Dutton. PK, did he say no? Do we know if they're going to say no to the $40 a fortnight? He hasn't said no yet. And I say yes, because I think if he's going to say this is his policy, which is keeping more money, and it is, you know, more than $2 billion, he really runs the risk of being called, and he will be, by uh, Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese as, as an economic vandal, you know, and, and having, um, being loose with money. So if he has his policy 
and the government's, you know, more than $4 billion um, job seeker boost. So doing both will be hard, but equally standing in the way of a job seeker increase is also pretty tricky because it does seem rather, well, mean when these people are so, so poor. Uh, but so they haven't landed on a final judgment. He's doing this whole kind of, well, it depends if the government takes up our idea. Is the government going to take up the idea? They say there's an employment paper they're going to put out. They're going to look at all ideas. They do know that with record low unemployment, they need to sort of work on this cohort, which is stuck in entrenched disadvantage. Yeah, let's look at that because on the face of idea, it has merit, doesn't it? And it is not nasty. It's saying to people who are on the unemployment queue, we want to help you get into work and keep more of your money. This thing called the taper, which means you get a high tax rate if you earn over $150 a fortnight on JobSeeker, and they want to extend that to $300. So will it work? You know, will it help plug the gaps in that struggling labour market that we've got? Even more importantly, will it get more people off JobSeeker and back into the workforce? That really needs to be looked at closely, I think. Mm. I was really struck with it because the tone of it, I think, is a bit different than we've seen from coalitions in the past. Um, Not all of them, but in the past, I'm sure coalition governments have been a against easing the taper too much for fear of it enticing more people to stay on the unemployment benefit for longer and making life kind of, quote, cushier on the dole, if you like, which is in direct contrast to the ideas of some post-coalition governments who are all about making life tougher for people on the dole to urge them to get, you know, as I would say, off the couch and Mm. into work. I mean, remember Dobbin a dole bludger, you know, the hotline. Remember job snobs. You know, these were the attitudes of the past. Job snobs, I remember that one. It it, it seems like a different tone here from Peter Dutton, which I think people will look at approvingly. But something like 75% of people on JobSeeker, I think I'm correct in saying, don't take up casual work now to boost the incomes. There could be a lot of reasons for that. Casual work not always easy to find. I mean, Peter Dutton says this would allow people to do two or three days work. Is there the structure in our workforce to allow that to happen? Also barriers to work on the dole. We've talked about this before. You you can't afford the internet. Probably some people can't afford to run a mobile phone. You know, public transport costs. You've got to have decent clothes. These things are hard when you've been living on the dole for a long time. And then the biggest barrier, which you mentioned there, the training. Just because people are unemployed, doesn't mean they are able, they are suitable for the 430,000 jobs that are out there. And that's, you know, something the PM has taken up when he spoke to you after the budget. It's something he's really focused on. Coalition governments in the past have had their own version of trying to deal with this. Michaela Cash was quite big on this, but it never seems to work. So it's something they're looking at, right? Yeah. I mean, it never seems to work. I think there has to be some really deep thinking about how to deal with some of these entrenched problems. And I don't know if we're quite there yet. So yeah, we're nearing the one year anniversary. A lot of promises about a new gentler kind of tone, collaboration and kumbaya. Has it happened in the parliament, friend? In little bits, hasn't it? In little bits. Tiny little doses. Yeah. I mean, the Greens, the government's finding itself much more dependent on the Greens than it ever thought it would be, I think, because you know, as you mentioned, the coalition have said no to almost everything. So they've had to work with the Greens and the independents in the Senate in particular, Jackie Lambie, David Pocock and the Greens. And they have managed to get through IR changes quite a lot, really. You know, net zero emissions by 2030, the emission safeguard mechanism, all those things. But it's come asunder, I think, in the wake of this budget. David Pocock has said that $40 a fortnight for people on JobSeeker is laughable, risable, less than Scott Morrison did. The Greens are against it. 
There's real rancour over the housing fund. The Greens are not going to support it. The, a lot of the independents don't think it's anywhere near enough. There's a lot of tension being played out now, I think. There's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it is there's just ideological differences where Labor thought they might be able to depend upon the coalition. And Labor also said that once you get, you know, critical mass of women and they're over 50% now in their party room, female, you know, the tone of parliament would change. And I think, you know, incremental, smidgy-widgy bit, but hardly anything, if at all. I think the Teals, too, have started to find their feet. Individuals of them now are speaking out more. I think that's going to help change at least some of the policy debates, which I think is a good thing. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Charles Croucher, Chief Political Editor for Nine News. Welcome to the party room. It's so nice to be here. First time uh, caller, long time listener. Long time listener, first time caller. We love that, Charles. Uh, Charles, the PM, Pico, and I've just been talking about a little earlier in the podcast in this first year, had a pretty good run delivering on major promises like childcare, energy bill relief, net zero by 2030, the National Reconstruction Fund, a wage hike for the lowest paid, including that 15% wage hike for aged care workers. So a string of hits, if you like. Mm. But as this one year anniversary comes around, there are gathering challenges ahead for the government, like housing in particular and the voice referendum. We're going to come to those with you shortly. But first, you're a former US correspondent. So I'd like to ask you about the decision by US President Joe Biden to cancel his visit down under, as he likes to say. Would this have been a a tricky decision for Biden or a no-brainer to stay home and sort out a possible debt default to deal with the debt ceiling? Yeah, I think it's a no-brainer 18 months out from a, a pretty contentious election. You know, Joe Biden had this triumphant victory over Donald Trump that was probably masking how close the vote actually was and how close things are with a sluggish economy. Uh, the simple fact, it, it's simple optics and, and, and simple math in the US. You know, the Congress controls the purse strings and the Republicans control the Congress. And you couldn't have people going without pensions, national parks closing down, you know, defaulting on loans and the Prime Minister, uh, the President rather, jetting around the world and leaving that negotiations to others, there is already a struggle that the president is going to have to face, the idea of looking weak, and that's largely due rightfully, wrongfully, you know, fairly or not to his age. He has to be in the room, and that's what we're seeing. There is a huge flow-on effect, though, and that's a great triumph, uh, this delay for China and for President Xi Jinping. In Australia, we'd say, if you can't organise a meeting, how can you organise the Pacific? I don't think they'll be quite that that harsh in Beijing. Well, they kind of are saying that, really. They're saying if you can't organise a meeting or you don't organise a meeting, what do you care about the Pacific, aren't they, really? Yeah, exactly, and and particularly in Papua New Guinea, you know, who had so much riding on this, had declared a national holiday. This was going to be a big moment. I hope it is still one day a big moment for Papua New Guinea, but it's a blow. Certainly a blow, and it's been really reported and depicted as a bit of a snub to Australia too. Uh, Here at home, we've just signed on to this 368 eye-watering billion dollar AUKUS Defence and Strategic Pact. Uh, The least he could do is share the gloss around, right? Like, you know, bring a bit of his presidential sort of Ray-Bans, aviators. And I get it. You've explained why he had to stay, but there is sort of a tension there. He's going to Japan. Yeah, it's going to be hard for the next couple of days. I suspect once the four of them are in the room in Japan, that will make things a little bit easier and putting on that united front. And then when Narendra Modi gets 
moments here and all the fanfare that goes with the visit from the Indian leader, that might just fade into the background. It may be a great chance for Narendra Modi to take the limelight as, you know, I was lucky enough to go over to India this year and see the huge fanfare and huge, uh, you know, mm-hmm. adoration that the Indian people in, in large chunks have for their leader. Some of that will play out in Sydney in the next few days. I think that's going to take the focus off Joe Biden. There still is, and you're right, it is a snub. You know, this is hosting a party and the, the most important guest didn't show. However, I think once the red carpet's rolled out with that formal welcome to Anthony Albanese later on this year, whether it involves a state dinner, which would only be one of three that Joe Biden has done so far joining France and South Korea, that would get you know any doubts back on track. And those two see a lot of each other and have shown some pretty genuine affection for each other, Joe Biden and Anthony Albanese as well. But this is just the reality of a, of a deeply divided America where things are high stakes and it feels like at the high mm. stakes all the time as the Republicans eye off their presidential primary. And, you know, if you're a betting person, you'd say the return of Donald Trump to the head of the Republican Party. Yeah. Look, I've got to say, I wonder if Canberra's currently printing giant posters of Modi just to sort of compete, you know, (laughs) rallies on the streets, just like they did where all of a sudden our prime minister became a pop star. Just before we leave American politics and go to our domestic politics, Charles, given how much, you know, how recent your knowledge is of all this, you know, Biden's decision to stay home, how much is it about debt and how much is it about Trump? Because if Trump was elected in 2024, I mean, you know, that's important for Biden. What would it mean for Australia? Yeah, hugely important for the Quad as well. We were able to negotiate um, the Trump presidency last time pretty well. Uh, and that's in large credit to uh, proactive leadership from Joe Hockey in lots of ways. Also, our, our team on the ground in Washington, Malcolm Turnbull, and then Scott Morrison, who became, you know, almost uh, President Trump's right-hand man for a while there, according to the president. So that was a, a good sign too. The problem with a Donald Trump presidency for Australia is it's all inward looking and largely domestic focused. And at a time when there is so much pressure on the Pacific and a power struggle in the Pacific. The president, aside from trips to North Korea, didn't seem overly interested on this region and on the history and the geopolitical struggle that was going on here. He may surprise us all, as he's done a couple of times, but I think in terms of this relationship and America's outlook on their own position in the world, it is a vastly different prospect if Donald Trump is back in the White House in January of 2025. So taking you to our own country and the the looming and significant, I think, first anniversary of the Albanese government, the, the background news is pretty good, as, as Fran beautifully outlined. And according to polling from the Nine Papers, 63% of voters have given the government the tick of approval for their performance in their first year, which is pretty good. No doubt the government is facing, though, some substantial challenges, particularly over the next few months. What's your observation of how Anthony Albanese is performing a year into the nation's top job? I think what the pair of you were saying beforehand was really poignant and, and summed it up nicely. This is a government that seems to be humming at the moment. Um, really getting through its agenda in the parliament. And in contrast to perhaps the, the, the final few years of the Morrison government, Anthony Albanese looks like he enjoys using the parliament. And as an old you know, leader of the House, an old hand in this building, knows how to use it. And people on Labor's side and some on the, in the Liberal side will say it kind of reminds them in ways of John Howard, the way that he and Peter Costello would constantly have things up and happening and debating and they'd, they'd be in charge of what was happening in the parliament. 
There's always another debate and a crossbench to be negotiated with or a Senate to be wrangled with or a fight to pick. That's largely how Anthony Albanese is doing it and in so many ways letting his ministers do it. Mm-hmm. You know, with the, the big industrial relations discussions, it was Tony Burke that was in the room doing all the discussions and the Foreign Affairs Department. It's Penny Wong that's out there doing that. When it came to the safeguard mechanism, we had a lot of Chris Bowen. You know, each and every step of the way, it's the ministers that are coming forward and that's leaving the Prime Minister to almost pick and choose when he intervenes and when he gets involved and it seems to be working. I think you're right, though, Charles. I mean, I think the the contrast between how Scott Morrison clearly disliked being in the parliament. It was an annoyance to him. It was an annoyance. He didn't like debates. He didn't take debates often. Whereas Anthony Albanese, he's playing on his home ground and uh, he, he loves it. You've seen more of this. Do you think the, the, the John Howard comparison is fair? There's been it's, it's quite a few people say that now. Uh, well, look, John Howard, like Anthony Albanese, spent a long time in opposition and nothing makes you uh, <laughs> more aware of the power of the parliament and what you might be able to do with it than spending a long time in opposition. So I think that was John Howard's sense. I think where Anthony Albanese has an edge even on John Howard is his people skills. John Howard spent a lot of time dealing with his own backbench to great effect. Anthony Albanese, during those Gillard years in particular, had to spend a lot of time, you know, doing deals and shaking hands across the mm. aisle. And he's very good at it. And if you speak to those balance of power players in the Gillard government, they will say he's very good at it. He has a lot of um, relationships, cross party relationships, and I think that stands him in good stead. So I think I'd give him the edge. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Look, he's certainly got a lot done. I mean, in in July we're going to have the National Integrity Commission, like the, the you know really mm. big architecture that's going to be built up. And interested to see what they'll start <laughs> looking at. But that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, that's another Can't... thing we forgot to mention. Yeah, no, we get plenty of warnings from the state colleagues in New South Wales and Victoria about yeah. the surprises that they can drop on you. Surprise! <laughs> a, a fun day for journalists. That's always the case with those uh, those things. So we're looking forward to that. But but there's there's obviously a few speed bumps coming up to Charles. There's no doubt about it. The proposed voice to Parliament really was a central pillar of Anthony Albanese's election promise. He's really puts it into almost every major speech he makes, doesn't he? Always. And so do all his ministers. I just want to say, and I always think this is really important, um, it's not Anthony Albanese's uh, idea. He took it from the Uluru statement and said he'd, he'd, he'd deliver it for Indigenous Australians. Now we're less than six months away from the referendum. The rubber has really hit the road, so to speak, but it's hitting some significant speed bumps, Charles. Obviously, we're referring here to the Resolve polling, which does show that the trend is to know, and that's a trend. Uh, that's just one poll, can I say. Uh, there are others, and, and it is certainly close. I think most people would agree with that. It's it's probably too close for, for comfort for the Yes campaign. What do they mm. need to do here? And are they, are they alive to this? Uh, and and they, they need to perhaps pivot here. Well, I wonder if they're playing a longer game, the Yes campaign. There certainly seems to be plenty of goodwill, um, sporting codes, clubs, um, organisations, uh, even the, the, the general polling seems to be in favour of making some change. The Yes campaign has to convince everyone that this change is the right change to see some uh, outcomes improve for Indigenous Australians. That's the thing, though, isn't it? The polling is overwhelmingly in favour of constitutional recognition. Mm. But then it drops off when the voice as the mechanism um, to reflect that is spoken about. Yeah. You know, so what's that problem show? 
Well, that problem is you have to explain. If In politics, usually if you're explaining, you're losing. Look, I, I still think the yes campaign is in the box seat. I know it's hard and it's difficult to try and get referendums across the line. We have a history that shows that. But that goodwill can be harnessed. And, and even on the no side, you speak to them there, they don't think they can win the popular vote. So they're targeting states. It is just whether they can out-campaign the yes side. Mm. And there's some really smart people from both sides of parliament working on that yes campaign. We haven't heard from them yet. I wonder if that's going to build up. And and some of the the chats that, PK, you had this week talking with the leaders of the Yes campaign, talking about the number of volunteers and donations they've got, there is the ground team to build a successful campaign. They've just got to arrest this slide and and do it reasonably soon. We're still six months away. If you're looking at, at national figures, you'd be pretty happy for the Yes side. Queensland, Tasmania, Western Australia, perhaps South Australia, that's where things might get tough. Yeah, that's a problem because three states go and it goes down. Exactly. Um, Another, obviously, a central commitment from Anthony Albanese, and we heard it earlier in the program from his election victory speech, was no one would be left behind and no one would be held back. Mm. With his second Labor budget, this full budget now handed down, how's the Prime Minister going on delivering that commitment? He's certainly helping those that are most in need of help. But I think the coalition has found their mark with the idea of the working poor. And you've heard government ministers start talking about middle Australia. It strikes me that all these prime ministers have had their their target markets. We always heard about working families with Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd. Of course, Howard Battler's, Scott Morrison's, you know, quiet Australians. (laughs) It seems like all the way along, there's been a real central focus. I'm not sure if this government has that yet. And probably by design, I've asked Jim Chalmers about it a couple of times and he always says, we're not dividing up, we're taking Mm. everyone with us. And sure, if they can do that, then that's fantastic. Yeah, he'll take any voter he can get. Exactly, exactly. That might be the smart way. But to your point, Fran, there are questions with what happens with inflation, what happens with wages, and then the other two, will there be medicines on the shelves and will you be able to see a GP for free? Because if the answer to those last two is yes and the other two is, well, we're, we're, we're sorting it, then the government's sailing. Well, let's be clear. The answer to the will you be able to see GP is not going to be in a hurry. No. So that's <laughs> not going to hit really in a positive sense for most people, I think, for quite a while. But it's a start and it's a start that is way, way, way overdue, you know, mm. beefing up GP's co-payment, Medicare co-payments, I think, for those yeah, bulk billing, for those bulk billing figures. Greg Hunter's health minister you know, was telling me for a long time bulk billing was going up. No one felt that in a GP surgery near them that I could ever find. Mm. So on that element, no. The PK and I touched on it earlier, Peter Dutton's commitment to perhaps not necessarily support job seeker, but support people getting more hours of work mm. uh, when they're on job seeker. What do you think of, of that? And what do you think of the politics if Peter Dutton votes no to the proposed $40 increase for job seeker. The politics is really interesting because I think everyone realistically agrees that that rate is too low. I mean, the the, the, the base job seeker rate right now is, and there's studies, there's people that speak more articulately about it than, than me certainly, is below the poverty line and that needs to go up. If you can combine the two, so there is more incentive to work, we know there are jobs out there, but we also know there are pockets of Australia and people in Australia that there is long-term entrenched unemployment and the government's mentioned that. Jim Chalmers says it's a passion of his and something he wants to fix. The politics is interesting, though, because I'm not sure raising the rate of job seeker is a particularly popular idea, particularly among people that are working. 
I know the treasurer sort of christened this as sort of punching down or, or downward envy, but a lot of people that work hard and wonder what's in the budget for them, that is why the Liberal Party, through their focus groups or their, their discussions, have come up with this idea of the working poor that they keep going back to, because that might be trouble in yeah. the future if everyone else doesn't start seeing benefits. In the future, although yeah. having said that, I mean, I pressed Peter Dutton in my last interview with him on breakfast about, you know, whether he backs the 7% increase in wages for the minimum wage earners. <laughs> no political spin. They are the working poor. Yeah, they are. Yeah. The, and they he didn't the back that. Poor. So I think the argument could be easily unpicked. And the government's also offering energy bill relief and childcare yeah. increases. So they're rolling those, reminding people of those things every time. Plus the plus the GP thing. But that, it does that, yeah, be a bit of a death wrangle at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, if, if that fixes. If that goes up, if there's a 7% minimum wage increase, people start seeing more pay in their pocket and importantly start being able to buy more with it, which feels like a long-term plan with inflation, then then things will be okay. If not, there are opportunities um, that the opposition politically could exploit. Mm. I mean, it sounds all very politicky without, you know, acknowledging this as people's lives and livelihoods as well. Exactly. Real real mm. people, real yeah. lives. Yeah, absolutely. Really interested in some reporting. It's Thursday morning. We're recording this, that Peter Dutton plans to what? Maybe oppose the PRRT taxation um, hike, which is, strikes me as a little unusual. What's going on here, Charles? I, I, my guess is that the, and this is from talking to some there and also just looking at the tea leaves, is that this is the idea that any tax will force prices up. I know it's largely, largely export, but the opposition to banking on prices naturally going up because of load shedding and because of Australian uh, power stations coming offline and therefore prices going up. So uh, if they can somehow tie this tax increase to the price increase, whether it is actually tied or not, then they think they're on a winner. The risk, as has happened with a couple of things in this parliament, is that Labor then go to the Greens to find the votes in the Senate to get this through and the tax increases even more. So the industry is quite happy paying the amount that has been set out. They think that's enough. If they can just pay that and be left alone, then they can go back to effectively printing money, um, then they're happy to do so. It is one of those cases where careful not to give up your seat at the table because so often if you're not at the table, you're on the menu and that could happen here. Peter Dutton's <laughs> urging the, the gas industry to come out and spruik for themselves though, isn't he? Yeah. but He's clearly a little frustrated frustrated at this. They've so far said they're happy because, again, they can, they can well, say... Well, because they'll pay more pay tax exactly. under an alternative proposal. Exactly. This is quite a good deal for them, isn't it, Charles? Yeah, yeah it's a yeah. it's a we'll stay at the, the blackjack table. We're happy with our number and we can walk away with the money. The opposition held tough on the emissions reduction safeguard, though, didn't they? They did. They did. And look, it's through the parliament. That's that's the, the, the reality of the numbers here. So it becomes a game of chicken. Look, whether the Greens have decided they're going to flex a bit more muscle now too in the, as we've seen with the housing, which is by all measures of people at home, the number one issue for it so is, many yeah. people and the Greens are holding out there. So there is some brinksmanship going on a year into the parliament. We're not quite into that groove just yet. Talking about playing chicken, as you say, the Greens are, you know, resolute. They will not pass the housing future fund. It's stuck at the moment. Now some of Labor's own back benches are raising the prospect of revisiting negative gearing, cutting its eligibility to, Mm. say, one one investment property only, which is much tighter than I've ever heard suggested before. The PM, though, gave his colleague short shrift. No. Uh, So you're completely ruling it out? I think that was a pretty clear answer. (laughs) 
it was a pretty clear answer. <laughs> negative gearing was one Very of the policies. little ambiguity there. <laughs> That's right. The negative gearing was one of the policies that Bill Shorten, of course, talked to the 2019 yeah. election. Uh, they lost that. Is that why Anthony Albanese is so resolute here? Is this an idea that is going to have to come back onto the table at some point, probably after or in the run-up to next elections, as government are going to have to look at more revenue measures? I mean, it is a it is an obvious way to gain more revenue because there are very generous tax incentives for negative gearing. However, it, it's a brave, yeah. a brave leader that picks that fight again, and particularly when the coalition, who are a little without a direction at the moment, could so easily fall in behind that old campaign slogan that they had from from elections past. And I think that's why the prime minister was so adamant so adamant that that wouldn't be changing and he doesn't want to lose that big chunk of votes or or spend political capital on that fight. A lot of skin to put in the game when there's a lot of really, uh, you know, problems there on the uh, horizon that the Prime Minister would rather just deal with the ones he has to, not new ones flying his way. It's been a big year, big first year for the Albanese government. By and large, as PK said, the polls suggest people are happy with the government, think they're doing a good job. But is the honeymoon over? Is it going into a stable Be a long honeymoon, let's face it. Charles, it's great to have you with us on The Party Room. Love your work. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. And this week's question comes from Chris. Hi, Party Room. My name is Chris from Brisbane. My question is, is it possible that Labor would take the stage three tax cuts to an election after the budget next year? And how would that work with the Senate? How would the Coalition respond? Mm, that's a $64 million mm. question right now, Chris, so well said. Um, I think it's highly possible that they will go to the next budget, which is just ahead. The budget's in May. In July 1, the tax cuts are due to kick in next year. So if they want to make any changes or propose any changes, they'll have to put them there in the budget, I think. And then, But I think they will predicate it on being given the imprimata at an election. I think there's some wording around that. But I think what they would very much like to do is reshape those tax cuts to make sure uh, middle Australia is, is still gets what they're owed. There are real problems within the shape of our income tax system. There's Bracket creep is hurting people and governments have to do this from time to time. They have to give money back. So rather than the piecemeal uh, way of doing it, this was what this all was whole design was about. But, you know, on the face of it, the numbers do look unfair when politicians and others, people on high incomes, are getting $9,000 a year and others are getting mm, effectively a couple of hundred or at the best a few thousand. It doesn't look fair. So Anthony Albanese doesn't want to break, break an election promise. If he's going to do anything at all, and it's not clear he will because he is adamant about this, even though his treasurer, I think, would very much like to do some reshaping of this package. It's still not clear, but I, I think it's I think it's likely. You've been saying that for a while. I actually. have. I don't know. Early days still. I don't think they've they've even gotten close to landing on that. And I think they're watching the economy closely too, because uh, there are other factors as well. And you ask also about the coalition's response, and I think the coalition is going to lock in behind oh. the entire package and if Labor sought to change it, would welcome a fight on it. It I would be know. a broken promise. Yeah, but Labor would be taking it as you articulate it. So that would be hard to sort of say at an election they've broken a promise because, I don't know, we're at an election so we can... 
Well, Anthony Albanese, all he can see, I'm sure, <laughs> is all vote. those times he was asked in the election campaign where yeah, but there would be a new election. Yes, I know. <laughs> you can't quote the last election to the next election. Just seen the ads and he's seen them too, I bet. I, I'm sure he has. Look, it's going to be fun. Love talking tax. Uh, keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. We're especially fond of the voice notes. As we say, you can email them to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. But if you don't want to do that, don't let that put you off. Send in your questions. Remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app, everybody, so you never miss an episode. Yeah. And I'm off for a few weeks, PK, so next week you're going to be joined by David Spears. That's very nice. Yes, he will join me to talk all things politics. Don't worry, Fran and I will be reunited. And, of course, David Spears does a great job when he comes in the party room. We appreciate it. I will be back. See you, PK. See you, Fran.